Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Paul Rinaldi is our guest today. He's a longtime air traffic controller, president emeritus of the National Air Traffic Controllers Association, and president of Rinaldi Consultants, and he joins us from Washington. Paul, welcome to On Point. Hello, Magna. How are you? I'm doing well. How many years were uh, you in the business as an active air traffic controller? Uh, just over 30, short of 31. 31. Yeah. So I'm speaking to a true veteran here. Yes. Well, we asked you on the show today to help us decipher some of the communications between pilots and air traffic control on a particular day in Austin, Texas. So we're about to hear um, bits of a recording from February 4th, just after 6.30 a.m. on a foggy morning in Austin. And the entire interaction is about four minutes long. We're going to hear significant sections of it. And here's how it starts. Austin Tower, FedEx 1432 Heavy. Passing 5.4 for the Cat 3 ILS, 1-8 left. FedEx 1432 Heavy, Austin Tower, 1-8 left, RVR, touchdown 1,400, midpoint 600, roll out 1,800, 1-8 left, clear to land. So, Paul, this sounds like information between a pilot and the tower about a plane approaching for a landing? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, um, you know FedEx is telling the pilot, uh, the the tower that they're going to do a Cat three approach, which is um, the the most intense approach. It's an instrument instrument landing approach, an ILS approach, that um, either has a very low decision height, and decision height is when the pilot has to make a decision if he sees the ground, sees the runway, or he goes around. Um, so he's telling he's telling um, the tower that. Um, we're on a Cat 3 approach. We're five miles out. Mm. And the tower is actually giving the information as, you know, here is, you know, RVR is runway visual range. So he's, the tower is telling the pilot exactly what the range is, the visual range on the runway. And he gives the touchdown, the midpoint, and the rollout. And the 1,400, so, 600, what units are those? In feet. In yeah. feet. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, uh, 1,400 feet. Got yeah. it. So we're going to have a very sort of uh, a complex landing requiring a lot of skill from the pilot. We have Absolutely. affirmation from Austin Tower. One quick thing, just as an aside, uh, when FedEx identifies itself as FedEx 1432 Heavy, the Heavy indicates that it's like, what, a 737? No, no, no. Yeah. Heavy, you know, I don't know the type aircraft. Okay. Um, it's probably it, – so Heavy is, is – um, the weight of the aircraft has a maximum, you know, minimum takeoff weight of 300,000 pounds or more. Uh, it's usually a wide body. It's probably uh, a seven, Boeing 767, Boeing 777. I'm pretty sure that's what, you know, FedEx uses uh, for their wide bodies. Got it. Uh, and the reason you say heavy is because it, uh, it leaves a wake, much like a big boat in the water. It leaves a very big wake when it's, when it's going fast. Through the sky, a heavy aircraft will leave a big wake. Got it. And you want to make sure they, they use that to, so that there is a warning of anyone that's going to fly behind heavy. Uh-huh. Okay, behind okay. Heavy. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. One more thing about this first interaction. Um, Austin Tower says, 
18L18 left. That's yes. an important designation. Correct. What That's is it? That's the runway. So okay. uh, Austin has parallel runways, 18 uh, eight left, 18 right. Uh, so when he says you're cleared to land, runway 18 left, um, he's telling you know the pilot, you're lined up for the right run- runway. This is the runway you're going to land on. That's where the approach is being done. So it's really a, it's a confirmation back and forth between the pilot and the, and the controller. Right, which is standard practice to be sure everyone's under- understood each other correctly. Got it. Correct. Yes. Okay, so th- that's the setup for um, the approach that FedEx 1432 is going to take. And then in the in the recording of the interaction, we hear another voice coming in, and it's from a different pilot. Okay, so that's obviously a Southwest Airlines flight, 708. But we hear Which the, is a Boeing 737 for sure. Okay. Because that's all they fly. Got it. Yes. So then we hear 18 left again. Correct. Meaning the same runway? Yes. So, you know, it's, it's very common for, uh, for controllers to use the same runway for arrivals and departures. Um, and, you know, I don't know the exact situation in... In Austin, but maybe they only have uh, RVR, runway visual range readings, uh, on one eight left. And that would be one of the main reasons you would use this because obviously the fog is very thick, the ceiling is very low. So you want to be able to give the pilot uh, the most information about the situation. And that's why you would use runway 18 left and give the RVR readings. Okay. Yeah, so I'm glad that you specified that because, you know, of course, to my untrained ear, I was wondering if that was the moment where something had already gone wrong because we have uh, a flight scheduled for takeoff and one for landing using the same runway. But that's not where that sounds like it's it's common. It's very common. Okay. Okay. Well, so then after that, here is the reply that the Southwest flight gets from the tower. Southwest 708 off the tower, runway 18 left RVI 1200, midpoint 600, rollout 1600. Flight heading 170, runway 18 left, clear for takeoff, traffic 3 mile final is a heavy 767. Okay, so here, based on what you said before, Paul, we have the uh, the Austin Tower giving sort of the, how much visual range uh, that there is on runway 18L to the southwest flight. Then at the end of that cut, the tower says, Traffic three miles final is a heavy Boeing 747. So he's telling him that there's a the FedEx flight out there? Yeah, that's common, right? You let okay. them know. So, uh, you know, when you're – this is what I would call a squeeze play. We would run squeeze plays on a regular basis. Uh, uh, we normally wouldn't do it in this weather. Um, uh, that's the first thing that pops up. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's – you're not sitting with 30 departures that time in the morning. Um, it, it's a judgment call, but, you know, most controllers would sit and wait and make sure that FedEx would land safely uh, on the Cat 3 approach. There's also some requirements to keep the ILS critical area, the instrument landing system area, clear while they're doing such a, you know, such a precision approach uh, as a, you know, a Cat 3 approach. So, yeah, I, you know, I think, you know, we could always Monday morning quarterback, but I'm sure that that controller thinks, ah, if I could do it over again, I would probably just let FedEx, uh, Southwest wait until FedEx landed. Okay. So then moving on in the recording, we're going to come back to that squeeze play in just a second, Paul. But here's how Southwest 708 replies. 
Okay, interesting. So the pilot, the Southwest pilot there is saying he copies the traffic, meaning he understood the message about the uh, the Boeing 767 three miles out. Okay, now here, a little bit later, after a few seconds of silence, uh, the FedEx pilot comes back in. Tower confirm, uh, FedEx 1432 heavy, clear to land on 1-8 left. FedEx 1432 heavy, that is a firm, sir, 1-8 left, you are clear to land, traffic departing prior to route to 737. Roger. So I want to understand this, Paul. All situational awareness right there, right? Okay. FedEx is questioning. I mean, he's, that pilot has a display in their cockpit that could see, you know, that they're, um, they have their own radar and ADSB is, is broadcasting. So they could see um, that Southwest is taking uh, the runway. Southwest knows there's a heavy uh, three-mile final. So, I mean, just the way that controller would say it, it's, it's almost a key to tell Southwest, take this on a roll. you got to move quickly. It's three-mile final. I want to get you out. Uh, so everybody has the information, which, uh, and then the controller comes back and says, yep, there's a departure prior to your arrival, and you're still clear to land. Okay. It's interesting because I'm, I'm still struggling to hear... Um, you, you mentioned where the first anomaly might have happened regarding that, that squeeze play. Right. But not long after this, that, that moment of situational awareness that you just described, we hear this. Southwest aboard. FedEx is on the go. Okay, so that's the FedEx pilot, if I understand correctly, talking directly to the Southwest pilot? Which is 31 years of experience. That's really unusual. I don't ever remember uh, a pilot issuing a control instruction. Now, um, but the pilot it wants to make this go around as safe as possible. And he knows that, he knows that Southwest took a while to, to spool up and start going, which is, ki- is common first thing in the morning. This was, this was the first flight in the morning. So they do you know, some runway checks and they do a, a run-up, what they would call with their engines, to make sure everything's functioning properly. Um, and then they start their departure roll. Well, FedEx was getting very uncomfortable that, you know, Southwest is still on the runway and that, you know, he's approaching this situation. He knows that if he goes around, he's going to go runway heading and climb because that's probably the missed, missed departure or the, you know, the go-around, you know, uh, route that he has to take. So FedEx knows he's got to climb and go runway heading, and he knows this is going to be a departure climbing run underneath him. That's uh-huh. why FedEx goes aboard. Okay. Um, now, I don't know the situation where the controller is at this point. Uh, it's important to, to give... You know, the controller, some, maybe he's doing some collateral duties. It's first thing in the morning, get setting up for the, the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he, he gave all the information, cleared Southwest, cleared FedEx, thinking everything's good. The important thing to know is there is no uh, ground radar here. Uh, there's no ASDX or ASSC program that has, you know, separation logic that would alert the controller that you have a situation here and you need to take 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 control of the situation. So the, it, it's unfortunate that the pilot of FedEx takes control of the situation, but thank God he does at this, at this time because he's basically saved the day. Okay. So there's more to this recording that we're going to hear after the break that we're sure. going to take here, but obviously this is an example 
of what turned out to be a near miss. Everything, everyone landed and took off safely. We should say that just before people get nervous. But, but it was a near miss. And um, the fact is that the number of near misses or the percentage of near misses in the United States uh, in American aviation has been rising and quite dramatically uh, in the past several years. So Paul Rinaldi, veteran air traffic controller, we'll talk with you a little bit more about why that is when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we're talking about the dramatic rise in near misses in U.S. aviation over the past decade or so. And I'm joined today by Paul Rinaldi. He's a veteran air traffic controller, president emeritus of the National Air Traffic Controllers Association and current president of Rinaldi Consultants. And before we get into the reasons why we're seeing an increased number of near misses, I want to finish up the uh, interaction that we're analyzing between a Southwest flight, a FedEx flight, and Austin air traffic control in Texas from earlier this year. So, Paul, where we left off was the FedEx flight um, telling the Southwest flight directly to abort because FedEx was coming in for its landing. Southwest was still on was was in the process of taking off. Um, and things uh, looked very hairy there for a moment. So in the uh, air traffic control recording, this is what we hear next. Southwest 708, Roger, you turn right when able. Negative. Okay, so that's the tower telling Southwest 708, you can turn right, and the Southwest pilot saying that's not possible. Now, Paul, from the FAA's subsequent investigation, we know that at this point the planes were perhaps 100 feet or less apart. So the next thing we hear is a command from the controller. It's 1432. Okay, so that's interaction with the FedEx 1432 flight. And then quickly after that, we hear... Southwest 70, you can turn uh, left heading 170. 177. FedEx 1432, turn left, heading 360, contact approach on the 125.32. Okay, so Paul, what is the Austin Tower telling both of these flights right now in, in that yeah. critical second? Yeah. So, um, you know, when he says unable, Southwest doesn't take the first turn, I'm assuming, you know, after looking at the simulation, at the, if, if the timing's correct, it looks like Southwest is still on the ground 
it's obviously not going to take a turn in the air, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because he's still on the ground. And, and, and FedEx was, was right in trying to stop, although it's very unconventional, like I said. I don't ever remember uh, a pilot taking control of another flight, you know. Uh, but, you know, FedEx was trying to stop that, knowing that they were both going to fly over the runway. One was going to be on the ground taking off. One is landing maybe 150 to 170 miles an hour, while one is standing still starting to speed up, uh, you know, and, you know, it, it, three miles is fast at 170 yeah. uh, miles an hour, right? <laughs> so you, you, you just know that this is, this is a very close one. And, you know, looking at the situation, it, not a lot of things scare me. Uh, I've, I've seen a lot. I've been involved in a lot over the years. This, this one was, was very, very close. And it, the, the sad thing about this is if we had, if Austin Tower had the, you know, the ground radar program that they should have, mm-hmm. uh, this could, this would not even have been an issue. Now, granted, we can, we can question uh, the, the controller's performance. We can question Southwest's performance of taking that runway, knowing there's three miles out and knowing they had to do it. And, you know, it was going to be a little bit, uh, a little time to do a run up. But, you know, the system's built on controllers and, and pilots communicating with each other, sharing information, and relying on each other. Uh, and, you know, there by the grace of God, uh, right. the, the FedEx pilot really did a, a fantastic job. Well, it sounds like what you're saying is that um, uh, we have controllers and pilots relying on each other based on the information that they have, right? And that the gra- ground radar could have given everybody more information at the time. But I want to just play the last little bit of this interaction. So after those directives given by Austin Tower, somehow the FedEx plane manages to land safely. Southwest 708 is in the air safely, and here's how the recording ends. And FedEx 1432 is exiting Lima. FedEx 1432, heavy, roger. Report clear the runway. You can join Bravo and uh, contact ground on point nine. We'll join Bravo, ground point nine. FedEx 1432 is heavy, let's clear the runway. FedEx 1432, heavy, roger, sir. You have our apologies. We appreciate your professionalism. Thank you. First of all, I just want to note as a fly, as a civilian flyer, not a pilot, but a passenger myself frequently, I am always deeply gra- grateful and impressed by the calm professionalism in every one of these interactions, uh, keeping us safe in the skies. We hear every person in this tape being um, the consummate professional. But Paul, from the perspective of the controller, I mean, put yourself in his shoes for a moment. Like, what just happened from his perspective? Well, you could, you, and you could hear it in his voice. Well, at least I can. And, you know, his cadence has changed tremendously. I mean, he thanked him for his professional. I mean, he knows that that was way too close for comfort for anybody, uh, and that should have never happened. And, you know, like I said, you can Monday morning quarterback. I mean, I, you, you, you're not supposed to roll southwest in that situation. You're just you're supposed to let FedEx land. It's an ILS critical area you need to protect. It, the fog is super thick. Uh, you, you know, I think it. I think it even went down from the time that FedEx got his runway visual range. I think it was 1,400 to the time Southwest was taking off as 1,200. So it went down 200 feet. These, these things you all have to take into into mm-hmm. you know into account. And you could hear in the controller's voice like, "Yeah, not my best, not my best decision. Certainly not my best day." Um, and what you really 
you know, as a controller in that situation, everything is report your role. Uh, and if he would have just said something like report your role, he would have saw that Southwest was going to uh, get eaten up on the runway by, by FedEx mm. uh, because he didn't roll right away. And, yeah. you know, first thing in the morning, they're not going to roll right away. They have to do they have to do their checklist and they have to do their, um, you know, their engine run up. So that's just, you know, that's just common. I don't know if this control has a lot of experience, but that's just normal operation. That, I you see. Know, don't. Don't bet on the come. That's the, the famous word of air traffic control when you train somebody. Don't bet on the come. Control the situation. Uh-huh. And, and there, was a, there was a lack of control and a lack of judgment on the controller's part. Okay. Well, thank you for that, Paul, because, um, you know, people who are flying in these aircraft don't, don't get to hear this stuff. And this gave us a clear picture into, in fact, a bunch of the things, I'd say, that have been going on underneath the surface when it comes to aviation safety in this country. Uh, you mentioned technology, uh, maybe experience, because a lot of air traffic controllers are retiring. We're going to talk about all of these in just a moment, because uh, according to some reporting from the New York Times and uh, the FAA itself, the number of near misses in this country has gone up 25 percent in the past several years. Now, let's put that in, a co- in context. Uh, we're talking about several hundred, perhaps, uh, in the past couple of years out of, what, 10 million passenger flights every year. So I want to put that in a little context. But, of course, aviation is such a, uh, a particular industry that uh, given the, the catastrophes that can happen if there are airplane collisions, we want that number of near misses to be zero, not growing. So, Paul Rinaldi, hang on for just a second. I want to bring Dorothy Robine into the conversation. She's also in Washington. She's a senior fellow at Boston University's Institute for Global Sustainability and served as aviation point person in the Clinton White House. Dorothy, welcome to you. Thank you, Magna. Okay. Great to be here. So I'm really glad to have both of you, because now let's get into the uh, the sort of deeper analysis here that's revealed or, or that we should be talking about after understanding that um, that tape that Paul walked us through. First of all, it seems as if things have been boiling under the surface for, what, 20, 30, maybe even 40 years that are perhaps just coalescing right now in the in the number of near misses that we're seeing, Dorothy? What do you think about that? I think there is um, a short-term problem and a longer-term problem. I think in the near term, uh, the number of near misses probably reflects the fact that uh, we have a post-pandemic fairly dramatic increase in air travel. And at the same time, uh, so air travel is going up. At the same time, the traditional experience level, level of pilots and controllers is going down because so many pilots um, retired or took a buyout during the, the pandemic and because we have a shortage of controllers. So I think that that is a, a near-term issue. But I think the lack of technology at the Austin airport, mm-hmm. the shortage of controllers, those are chronic problems. Mm-hmm. Those go back to uh, weaknesses uh, in the U.S. air traffic control system that's been going on for decades. Okay, so let's talk about the, sh- the controller shortage uh, for a few minutes more. Paul, Paul, walk me through a couple of the rules around um, uh, air traffic controls. There's a mandatory retirement age, right? That's correct. Uh, age uh, 56 is the mandatory retirement age unless uh, the FAA issues you a waiver. And you're, you want a waiver, and, and, and that waiver, 
is for only one year. You have to make sure you maintain your medical security and uh, all your background checks are, are up, up to snuff, so to speak. Okay, 56. So does that mean that we're seeing uh, like a, a bump now in in retirements because of the, I don't know, the average age or median age of an air traffic controller? Well, one of the reasons I retired is because I reached age 56. Mm. Um, and I, I think that... You know, it's a very stressful occupation, and and you could just just from that Austin event, you, you know, you just you hope this controller can recover from something like that because you could see it or you can hear it in his voice that you know that was a bad one. So those type of things will stay with you your rest of your, your rest of your career, and you just have to be able to kind of navigate through that. So a, most controllers do not make it to age fifty six. Mm-hmm. They can go with twenty years experience at age fifty. Um, or they can go 25 years of, uh, of on the job at any age. And a lot of them just go because because it is a lot of stress. And you're working nights, you're working weekends, you're working holidays. And, um, yeah. you know, it's, it, it's a very demanding job. Okay, so Dorothy, again, about the the number of air traffic controllers currently in, in the system. We'll talk a little bit more uh, later about how uh, why Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says there's there what some 3,000 short um, right. of the ideal number. Um, but I want to actually go back in time for a moment because many listeners might remember that back in 1981, Air traffic controllers went on strike. Uh, they walked off the job, striking for better pay and working conditions. And uh, President Ronald Reagan really vowed to crush that strike. But I must tell those who failed to report for duty th- this morning, they are in violation of the law. And if they do not report for work within 48 hours, they have forfeited their jobs and will be terminated. So Reagan ultimately followed through on that threat, firing more than 11,000 air traffic controllers. And Dorothy, that makes me presume that many more had to be hired in a shortish period of time. And is part of what we're seeing that those people hired right after 1981 or thereafter are aging out? Paul may be a better person to answer okay. that. But I, I do think you you have seen there are so many controllers who were hired after the, the PATCO uh, firing. And you, you've seen that cohort go, go through and um, many of them retire um, at a similar time. So I don't know how much that, I think you can, I think the shortage is more than that, but mm. I think that contributes to it. Paul, do you want to just give us your quick take on that? Sure. I was actually hired 10 years to the date that Ronald Reagan fired uh, the air traffic controls on August 3rd. Um, and I aged out in 2021. So anyone that was hired in that wave uh, after the strike and after the firings, were already aged out. So the the interesting thing is that the the agency would, because of budget reasons, wouldn't keep a pipeline of controllers coming into the system. Uh They would say they reached their number and then they would stop hiring. And that's, they've changed that mindset, but government shutdowns, threats of government shutdowns, uh, you know, budget concerns, um, certainly COVID, all of this played into the fact that, you know, you have to keep the FAA Academy open, which is in Oklahoma City, uh, and keep a pipeline going through there. Because, as I said, you can't count on everybody going to 56. If they get 25 years and they're 48, they might retire. Or mm. they retire at any time at, at age 50. So those are the things you really have to – that agency has to focus on. And it looks like they are actually ha- have a different mindset now. Right. Yeah. 
as far as the shortage, it, the only way to get hired as an air traffic control, well, there's two ways, but the, the main way is, uh, is a, you know, uh, is a bid that comes out for everybody and, you know, 50,000 people might want the job and the FAA has to figure a way to call out that list and issue tests. And when they get down to it, the maximum amount of seats they could put through their academy every year is 1,800. Um, and the FAA Academy is a screen, so you lose about 50% yeah. out of that 1,800, and you, you know, so you're down to 900. And then you talk about issues with placement. Somebody from California, and they they place them in in New York, and they don't want to they don't want to go there. Um, certainly, right. Once they get to the facility, there's also a washout rate of another 15, 20%. So you're looking maybe about 750 out of the 1,800 three years later become certified. In the meantime, the FAA is projecting to lose 1,600 this year. Oh, that's so, interesting, yeah. So they're, on their best year, they're looking at a net gain of 200. But oh, that's their best year. That's their best. So it's like... In, in, a, in a way, the FAA prior to, to recent times has been behaving like a lot of, uh, uh, you know, even corporations just hiring when they think they need them. But when you need them, it's actually too late. Should have prepped for it a long time before that. Point well taken, Paul. Um, we'll talk about fixes later. But, Dorothy, the other major sort of vein of, uh, of reasoning behind why we're seeing those near misses, more near misses now, you said was technology. Uh, yes. Go, go ahead and elaborate on that. Run, runway <coughs> safety technology, uh, incur, uh, incursion prevention technology um, has come a long way. Arnold Barnett, who's a statistician at MIT and an uh, aviation safety expert, um, who, who talks a lot about the incredible safety record in aviation. I mean, we should, we should say there has not been a commercial uh, aircraft crash since Colgan Air in 2009. Mm-hmm. And that's a remarkable uh, record. Um, one of the areas where there's been real improvement in technology is is um, is airport surfaces where planes are a lot closer together than at any place else in their uh, in the in the whole system. Um, and the National Transportation Safety Board has told the air traffic organization that part of the FAA that runs the air traffic. Uh, operation that they should be deploying uh, ASDX, which is, I think, what Paul referred to when he talked about ground radar, much more um, uh, rapidly, and they have they have not done that. I think, from what sh- uh, the head of NTSB said at the hearing, it, the it's a, a largely a resource issue. She said, whenever I talk about technology, the FAA says. We don't have the resources. And she said, you need to get them the resources. Uh-huh. And by the way, that hearing that you mentioned was actually fairly recently. There's been a lot of discussion across the course of this year regarding um, the need for, for technological and personnel uh, improvements in the FAA. So when we come back, we're going to talk more about, OK, well, what will it take to achieve these things so that... Um, near misses, which are our measure today, can be pushed back down to the absolute minimum and ideally zero. So that's what we'll do when we'll come back. This is On Point. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. 
But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we're talking about aviation near misses as a measure, as a measure of the dire need across the U.S. aviation system for technological upgrades and also more support and hiring when it comes to the nation's air traffic controllers. I'm joined today by Paul Rinaldi. He's a veteran air traffic controller and also president of Rinaldi Consultants. Dorothy Robine joins us. She's a senior fellow at Boston University's Institute for Global Sustainability and served as an aviation point person in the Clinton administration. Now, I just want to uh, play a moment from hearings last week. Dorothy, you had mentioned this, uh, where the uh, current president of the National Air Traffic Controllers Association, Rich Santa, testified on aviation safety. And he called for more funding for the FAA to upgrade its communi- communication technology and gave folks a picture of what it's like for air traffic controllers right now at work. Last year's controller, controllers at 40% of our facilities worked six-day work weeks at least once a month. And several of our facilities require six-day work weeks and 10-hour days every single week. Air traffic control is already a highly stressful profession. Working 200 hours per month layers on significant fatigue and inserts additional risks into the NAS. The NAS being the National Airspace System. Well, we wanted to get the perspective of a pilot. Captain Jason Ambrosi is president of the Nas- of the Airline Pilots Association International. It's the union that represents more than 70,000 pilots in the United States and Canada. And he told us about just how much pilots and the FAA's air traffic controllers rely on each other. Between the pilots and the air traffic controllers, it's truly a partnership. You can't do this without the other. The system doesn't work without at least two well trained, qualified, and rested pilots on the flight deck at at any time, as well as having our brothers and sisters in in air traffic control on the ground to uh, keep us separated and safe. Ambrosi says that some of the challenges we've seen in the past three years specifically stem from the disruption caused by COVID-19. We've heard that already. Air traffic contracted greatly, and a lot of workers left the industry. Coming out of the pandemic, There's a lot of new in the system. We have, it's not just new pilots. It's not just new controllers. It's new flight attendants. It's new mechanics. It's everybody. There's a lot of new in the system. And airlines pushed a little quick coming out of the recovery. And you saw early on in the recovery how how the operational reliability of the airlines suffered greatly because they overscheduled. Ambrosi also agrees that at the FAA, the administration is too short-staffed. We need more air traffic controllers. They'll tell you themselves that, that we need more air traffic controllers. Everybody is is working as hard as they can. They're working a lot of overtime, and, and we appreciate that, but they need help and reinforcements on the way. So this issue is really... Uh taken uh, the attention or captured the attention of the highest levels of America's transportation system because Secretary Pete Buttigieg said back in May that the FAA was short, is short, about 3,000 controllers. And he's talked a lot about that in the media since. Here he is on News Nation last month. We do see a concern in terms of the availability of enough air traffic control staffers that you have backups if somebody calls in sick or uh, if there's a lot of pressure on a particular region or tower. And uh, in some areas, we're not at the staffing levels that I want us to see. 
Now, we reached out to the FAA for this show. They didn't make anyone available for interview. They sent us a written statement, though, which includes, quote, the FAA hires controllers annually and have for decades. This year, the agency hired 1,500. Next year, we will hire 1,800. Keep that in mind because we heard uh, what that process actually entails from Paul Rinaldi uh, and the, uh, the dropout rate in that hiring process. Now, more fundamentally, Captain Jason Ambrosi says that the FAA needs funding not just to continue day-to-day operations now, but to invest in the future. We need long-term stable funding for the FAA so that we can get technology in place that, that assists pilots and controllers to, to move forward. Several airports have, for example, ground surveillance radar, and it helps you know controllers identify where airplanes are, but not all airports have it. There's also simple things like uh, runway status lights. So runway status lights, it's a mechanical system that basically just, if somebody crosses a line, it puts a red light on and says, don't take off. So it's something simple. It's just not cheap, right? Because running that wiring at all these long runways is not cheap. But having those status lights is something that's easy technology that's readily available and that should be implemented essentially everywhere. Now, we're going to get back to the current funding situation at the FAA in just a quick second. But, Paul, I wanted to interject here. Runway status lights, that seems like a very, very, well, I don't want to say simple, but uh, sensible technology. Is it in any U.S. airports or or how many? It- it is. I don't know. I don't know. Have the exact number okay. of runway status lights, but I mean, it is. It, it's something simple. And this this Southwest uh, FedEx uh, situation, this that would not work because of the thickness uh-huh. of of the fog. And obviously, the pilot has technology. You could see uh, the FedEx pilot. Uh, both Captain Ambrosio and President uh, Rich Santa and the sec- actually even the Secretary of Transportation, they're correct. Uh, we're short controllers. Uh, we're, we're lacking in modern technology for sure. Uh, that's been a, a common theme for the last two decades. Uh, and the important thing, when the FAA says they hire controllers, they do. I give them uh, full credit. They do hire controllers. But they've increased the number of certified controllers from FY22 to FY23, and this was in the testimony uh, last week, by six. Mm. By six. And it, and and they're saying the best year will be increased by 200. If we're 3,000 down and you only hire 1,800 a year, it's going to take 15 years to get back to normal, and that's just not acceptable. Right. They have to figure a different way to hire controllers. We have college uh, initiative uh, training programs in Emory-Riddle, in Vaughn College, in UND, throughout the whole country. And they used to use them as a valuable resource, and they stopped it. They need to get back to that and augment the 1,800 that are going through Oklahoma City Academy and use them as a screen-type facility and get them in our facilities. Yeah, yeah. We okay. need the help. We need the help now. Okay. Well, so all of this, or so much of this, comes down uh, to funding. Now, I'll be the first to say that not every government dollar is spent in the best way possible, but the funding question seems to be very, very urgent here because in April, back in April, when the House voted to raise the U.S. debt limit and ensure that the government can pay its bills, House Republicans attached deep cuts to domestic spending, including a potential 8% cut to the FAA. Now, To be fair, those cuts are unlikely to pass the Senate. They will certainly be vetoed by President Biden if they ever made it that far. 
But yesterday, the House passed yet another continuing resolution to narrowly avoid a government shutdown. So it'll keep the government open until January and February of next year, depending on the agency. That just happened yesterday, so a narrow avoiding of a government shutdown. But uh, that also means that the debate over federal spending cuts is going to come back again in the beginning of 2024. And just this month, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg described the impact targeted spending cuts could have on the FAA if they passed. To absorb the 8% cut that they have proposed, we would have to totally freeze FAA hiring in operations and facilities. We'd be set back in modernizing systems like the NOTAM system that led to nationwide havoc with just a 90-minute Outage, outage earlier this year. And what's especially galling is that we see some of the same elected officials who have responded even to weather delays by blaming the administration now turning around and demanding that we cut resources for air traffic control. Now, avoiding a government shutdown in regards to that, House Speaker Mike Johnson said yesterday that he feels that making sure the government stays open is a matter of conscience for all members of Congress, but he added that he's not going to support another stopgap measure to keep the government open without the cuts that House Republicans have demanded. And he said, quote, we're not surrendering, but you have to choose the fights you can win, end quote. Okay, Dorothy, so, you know, we're always looking for solutions here because one thing <laughs> one thing that's for certain, as a federal agency, the FAA is always going to have to, uh, you know, bear the stress of appropriations. So... Is there a way to insulate air, air traffic control from, you know, the vagaries of government decision-making? Uh, Magnet, there is a better way. There really is, and we only have to look at Canada to see it. Um, let me – the air traffic control system is not inherently governmental. Operate – doing what Paul did for 30 years – is not an inherently governmental activity. It's safety critical. It's very sophisticated. But the same can be said of building a Boeing 787 or operating an airline. These are things that are done by the private sector subject to regulation by the FAA. That's number one. Number two, precisely because operating the air traffic control system is operational slash commercial in nature, we do it very poorly we, it, because it, we do it out of a traditional government agency, a regulatory agency. Mm. It, they are subject to uh, the whims of Congress uh, because that's where they get their appropriation. The FAA is like a, a green plant that, that moves toward the sun. <laughs> they treat Congress as their customer rather than airline operators, much less the traveling, the traveling public. They are subject to the stop-and-go nature of the, uh, government, of the government budget process. They are subject to all of the crazy things um, that are unavoidable for most government activities, yeah. but are avoidable. So I hear for, you. I hear those. you creeping towards the well. Let's the just keyword. get air yeah. traffic control out of the yeah. FAA. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Privatization, and, corporatization, whatever well, you want to call it. Yeah, I prefer corporatization. The P word became a a, um, uh, a a pejorative in the in the most recent debate. We tried to do this in the Clinton administration. We tried to spin it off as a government. Uh, corporation with a board and a CEO and the ability to borrow money from Treasury or go to private debt markets, hugely important. You're talking about 20-year investments. You can't make 
those kind of investments if you're a government agency. You have to pay for things up front, nor can you make the kind of incremental uh-huh. improvements that air traffic control needs. Our, our proposal was dead on arrival. There was a more sustained, nearly successful effort um, in 2018 led by Bill Schuster, <coughs> the chairman of the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. Paul and I testified uh, twice um, and but that too was was unsuccessful. Okay, let me jump in here. Um, yeah, Paul, I want to just get your quick take on this. Maybe Dorothy already sort of gave us a hint of what it might be. As an actual air traffic controller, do you see the idea of pulling air traffic control out of the regulatory, uh, out of the FAA as a regulatory organization, a plausible or even favorable idea? Uh, I I supported it in 2018 yeah. because uh, you, you could see exactly we we're not able, you know, everyone likes to throw around the FAA is the gold standard in aviation. Uh, we have the best air traffic controls in the world, without a doubt, Cer- certainly the best pilots and the best airlines in the world. But we're not the gold standard anymore when it comes to our air traffic control equipment. Uh, it's aging. Uh, it needs to be replaced. Our, you heard on the, the the beginning. Our information systems are are updated with some of them with floppy disks. You can't even turn them off. They're on, on three eighty six computers. Uh, we're walking around our towers with with paper strips. And the the Canada's, the UK system, Australia, New Zealand, they've all pulled the operation, the ATO, and they call it the ANSP. They pulled it away from the regulatory uh, and the oversight. Uh, and made its own structure. You know, when you buy a, a, an airline ticket, you pay a lot of taxes. Those taxes go to an airport airways trust fund. That trust fund funds the FAA at roughly about 90, 95%. Mm. Yeah, that, you could use that to actually run a, uh, an organization, and it doesn't have to be private. It could be corporate. It could, be, it could even be in government, just can't be subject to the whims of who's in the White House or who's controlling Congress and the budget. They need money to modernize the system or else, you know, in 2018, I stood up for it and people said, well, do you still support it? I go, the system is, there's alarms going off everywhere about our system. Now is the time to actually address it while they have an FAA reauthorization bill on the table, say, we've got to do something here. Something Mm -hmm. serious is about to happen. Yeah. Oh my gosh, you're describing a floppy disks and paper strips made me like half wonder if we're having you know Fortran as a public as a as a programming language still at the FAA. But Dorothy, before not too long ago it was oh just my so we're God. clear. Okay, well, but Dorothy, before we uh, we're running out of time here, I wanted to just a quick check on something. Yeah, you mentioned that just look to the north in Canada. Yeah. They've do- essentially done what you're talking about. But what it comes down to is safety record. Do they have an uh, an acceptable safety record even with this different organization of their air traffic control? Absolutely. Yes. No, I think safety has only gone up. 60-plus countries have now taken the air traffic operation out of the traditional civil aviation regulatory agency and made it a a independent business-like entity. Canada has a a unique model, which uh, I particularly like, but uh, safety has only improved. In fact, I mean, right now, I, I should be explicit. We, the FAA is both operating and regulating the air traffic control system. That mm-hmm. is a conflict of interest, and it, is, it violates a directive from the International Civil Aviation Organization, which is 
the, the body that, uh, that aviation authorities look to for guidance. Um, so can I just read you a, a sentence from a, 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 a column by Scott McCartney, who was the aviation – he wrote the middle seat column in the Wall Street Journal for many years, and he is a general aviation pilot. And he said that flying <clears throat> north to south over the U.S.-Canadian border is like time travel for pilots as you leave a modern air traffic control system run by a company and enter one run by the government struggling to catch up. Wow. Okay. We have 30 seconds left. Um, I always do this and my staff laughs at me. I'm going to ask a big question. Um, what do you see right now, Dorothy, as preventing even sort of uh, people in government from listening to an idea like this? Um, the impediment as, for as long as I've known is has, it hasn't been labor. It has been uh, general aviation and specifically business aviation, the National Business Aviation Association, the 0.1% that fly $100 million Gulf streams and uh, pay very paltry uh, fees to oh. use the system. I see. So the fees for aviation operators would be part of how a, a privatized or corporatized air traffic control system would work. Okay. Wow. It seems like we just got to the beginning of something very, very interesting. <laughs> but as both of you mentioned, the more like the almost immediate term problem the FAA has comes with uh, the potential for more cuts or having to ask for more money. So, Dorothy uh, Robine, Senior Fellow at Boston University's Institute for Global Sustainability, thank you so much. And Paul Rinaldi, President of Rinaldi Consultants, thank you as well. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.